And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. At the beginning of Advent, we were uh, thinking about Exodus from slavery to freedom. And, and the big picture of what uh, Advent is all about. <clears throat> Advent means coming towards. The word literally means something is coming. Um, and, and so we looked at the Exodus story and saw that freedom was coming. And freedom is coming. So we've, we've thought about Advent as uh, an invitation to freedom, to freedom that goes beyond uh, the relative freedom that we have. And, and living as we do in the UK, we're relatively free. Um, of course, there are all sorts of uh, uh, constraints and so on increasingly about uh, freedoms and what constitutes freedom and what you can and can't say and so on. But compared to many places in the world, we're incredibly free, but we're not really free. We're not free in the fullest sense that God intends for us. And so we're on a journey towards freedom. And then last week, we looked at the story of the exile in the Old Testament, when despite the warnings God had sent through His prophets, the people of Israel in the northern kingdom and Judah in the south were uh, taken into captivity, and they were carried off to exile. And they were carried off to a land, to, to the land of Babylon in modern-day Iraq, and they were forced to settle and live there for 70 years until they were free again. And so we thought about home and what home looks like, what homecoming feels like. How many of you, actually, this is your last Sunday before Christmas, you'll be home next weekend? All right, well, Merry Christmas if we don't see you. Um, and so this time of year is a homecoming time when you're thinking about how many more days of work or college or university until we can just think it's downtime for Christmas. And maybe some of you, how many, are, how many people here are working right to the wire on Christmas Eve? Okay, all right. So these are the poor souls that need special mercy and compassion. Um, but either way, even though there might be a place on earth we call home, for lots of people, there is no place that either is home because they're homeless, or that is what they call home because they've migrated from somewhere else for safety, for survival, to escape things, but the place that they've come to is not home. <clears throat> and if you've lived in other cultures then you, for a period of time, then you find yourself caught between two places that are home. There's the home that is culturally, originally home, 
But then there's the place that you maybe spent 10, 20, 30 years that has become home. And you know that place better than the place you originally left. And so where is home? You don't fit in properly in either place. And yet the invitation of Jesus that is coming is an invitation to come home, to come home. And we we thought about the experience people have when they become Christians of some kind of sense that defies logic almost that I feel as though I've come home. And, And in Jesus, we are coming home to the place that He's prepared for us with the Father. And so we're on a journey, not just to freedom, but we're on a journey home. This past week has been fraught with uh, election fever and election speculation and exit polls and results and so on. And don't worry, I'm not going to go into the detail of all of that because you hear enough of it in every other outlet. But nonetheless, it's a week where for the individuals involved in politics, it's, it's been a week of rising or falling, of the rising or the falling of party fortunes, of reputations, of opportunity, of power. I was chatting in here on Friday to Kieran Turner, who works for the Evangelical Alliance and, and who is very engaged, particularly in the Scottish Parliament. Chrissy, where she's gone back, works with Kieran. She's uh, interning with the Evangelical Alliance at the moment. But I was chatting to Kieran, who was trying to write an article and was struggling to stay awake because he'd been down at the SECC. Uh, I think we call it the SEC now, don't we? We've dropped a C. Um, till 5 a.m. for the count uh, for, the, for the, all the Glasgow wards. And I was chatting to him. I said, oh, what was it like? What was the atmosphere like? And he said, well, you know, you often forget the human dimension in politics because you focus on the parties and the results. You focus on the successes or the disappointments. You focus on uh, whether your party got in, your uh, vote uh, got what you wanted or not. He said, but you know, it's a very, uh, it's quite a, a, a poignant sort of evening. Because on the one side, I suppose it's like any uh, football match or rugby match or a major international, inevitably, the higher the stakes, then the more acute the sense on the one side of utter euphoria at having won, and on the other side of utter crushing, tearful disappointment that you lost and that your life has changed. And he said it's like that. You know, over here, you've got some uh, either re-elected or newly elected MPs euphoric at their own success, at their party's success. And over here, you've got people who will not be going back to the job they've been doing for the past four or five years, who will no longer be going back to Westminster, who now have to think about what they're going to do, who've now got to think about finding a job, who've now got to think about a completely changed way of life. And so politics is about rising and falling in many ways. And, and the people who will become household names, and there are politicians who were household names 10 years ago that we probably can barely remember unless someone prompts us. And there are people we hardly know now who will become household names uh, over the next few years because they will take uh, cabinet positions and they will be reported on. Rising and falling, rising and falling. And meanwhile, against that backdrop of political celebrity, if you can call it such a thing, uh, 
or any of the other celebrities. I think some sacrificial people were here last night and missed the finals strictly. Uh, but it's okay because there'll be another one coming along soon with a whole fresh raft of celebrities and so on. Celebrity comes and celebrity goes, and they're ten a penny, and we've, some of us, had five minutes of fame where for five minutes we were known or seen, our faces appeared on the, uh, on the television or in some other place that counted for us as a moment of fame. But then it just goes. But I want to invite you to think about the gospel, the kingdom, which is a, an upside-down mechanic. It's always an upside-down mechanic in the kingdom. And the upside-down mechanic of the kingdom is that people are plucked from obscurity and given some earthly, quote-unquote, I'm not sure I like or I'm comfortable using the word, but celebrity. But if we take it back to uh, the, the, the root, someone... Uh, Celebrity is not necessarily just kind of social media or television, but celebrity is just being known and remembered and being uh, celebrated. And the gospel story is about people who were plucked from celebrity or from obscurity into and brought into celebrity. And actually, the Magnificat that we've heard is exactly that. I mean, it's a very powerful piece of poetry, of prophetic declaration from Mary. Now, I've, I've been speculating and I'm intrigued for years to know how old Mary was. I was quite shocked when I learned, was it last year or two years ago, that, that you know, in, in Hebrew circles, girls could be betrothed as young as 12. I mean, if Mary was 12 or 13 when she had Jesus, my goodness, that's quite a thought for us, because in our society, if a child of 12 or 13 has a child, that's remarkable. But that notwithstanding, even supposing she was between 14 and 16 or whatever, she's still a young girl, and yet she delivers this uh, powerful poem, this powerful uh, insight into what God is doing when she has barely had time to get her head round the news that she received from the angel Gabriel and the invitation to uh, say yes to what God was doing. And she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and they have this spiritual moment. It's almost like, are any of you old enough to remember Shazam? Oh, did you redo Shazam? I used to love Shazam. It's one of my favorite cartoons. Two, was it the two broken rings that when you joined them together, there was a big flash of lightning and a genie appeared? Anyway, back in my day, maybe not yours. You missed it. Sorry, kids. But it's like there's this Shazam moment when Mary and Elizabeth come together, and there's this surge of power. There's this surge of power between these two women, where John the Baptist forming in Elizabeth's womb, this older mother, leaps inside her, and she feels the movement. And she's in her sixth month, so movement will be well established by the sixth month of a pregnancy. And yet there's this sudden spasmic movement. We spent quite a bit of time uh, in the run-up to the birth of my grandson looking for movement. <laughs> and Helmut said, oh, there, oh, you missed it. Oh, you missed it. 
Movement is very exciting when a baby's on the way. It's, uh, if you're trying to get to sleep, I'm told, it can be pretty annoying. Uh, and, and if the elbows and knees are in the wrong places, it can be downright painful. But nonetheless, movement is a sign of something coming, of life, of expectation. And for Elizabeth, who thought she was barren and couldn't have children, and this miracle baby is conceived between her and Zechariah in fulfillment of the promise that Zechariah received. And it's exciting. And yet beyond that, there's this Holy Spirit electricity that passes between these two mothers. As uh, Elizabeth exclaims, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And this is before Mary's even had a chance to explain what's happened. So how does Elizabeth know that the mother of her Lord has come to see her when Mary, Mary has only just greeted Elizabeth but not had a chance to explain to her what's happening. So this is a moment of prophetic revelation. This is a moment where by the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth receives a word of knowledge about uh, not just the significance of the baby, but that it's in Mary's womb, in the woman uh, standing in front of her. And that same Holy Spirit electricity that inspires Elizabeth's prophetic insight into what's going on inspires this powerful poem because these are uh, the words of someone who can't yet possibly know what it is that it's going to look like. What has she heard from the angel Gabriel? You'll conceive and give birth to a son. You're to call him Jesus, Yeshua, which means God saves salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so that much she's been told, but the Magnificat says, Magnificat says all sorts of other things about the, uh, God's mercy to the humble estate of his servant, fair enough. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. And so Mary has this prophetic outburst about a God who takes nothings and nobodies and does incredible things with them and through them. And I just want to uh, remind you of some of the people who are in the Christmas story and see where they've been before, if you like. What do I mean by that? That's a bit weird. But I got to thinking about the cast of characters that appears. And, and usually it's in the nativity, it's just uh, the core characters Zechariah and Elizabeth very seldom make it to your average primary school nativity play. Sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth. No, we don't have time for you. Simeon and Anna. No, sorry, we don't have time for you. We're just going to stick to the core cast. Even though Simeon and Anna got there before the wise men, but the wise men were interesting because there's camels and a star. And, and let's face it, that's much more child-friendly. Well, Simeon and Anna, sorry, you didn't make the cut. But the story contains people we don't always focus on. And I love to think about Zechariah 
and Elizabeth and think about who went before that's just like them. And so I got to thinking about Abraham and Sarah, who couldn't have children, who had gone long past the years of childbearing and of the hope of descendants, and who may have been rich and wealthy and well-established, but were called by God. Were called by God with the promise of a child beyond their expectations. Of course, as far as the people of Abraham's day was concerned, he was just an old guy who emigrated with his wife in the evening of their lives, rich but without kids or generations to hand that on to. Someone who may have had a bit of status or whatever in his place and where he lived, but but they left. We don't know what happened to them. Abraham and Sarai, oh, they left months ago. Don't know what happened to them. Don't know where they went. And Abraham and Sarai went and they lived in Haran for a a time and then they carried on from Ur of the Chaldees, which is not terribly far away. It's, It's between Basra and Baghdad in Iraq. All the way up the Fertile Crescent, Iraq across Iran and and, uh, 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 possibly southern Turkey, northern Syria, and then down the coast and down through uh, Canaan, or Israel as we know it now. Who knew about them? Nobody at the time except God made a promise, and Abraham believed God. And so Abraham, the nothing who left with his wife and kids, sorry, not kids, with wife and riches, became the one individual who the three major religions of the world looked to as their ancestor and forebear. Abraham is the founder in terms of Judaism, in terms of Islam, and in terms of Christianity. Nothing and a nobody. And in those days, to be without children was to be in some respects considered to be under the curse of God. But let's fast forward a little bit because Abraham and Sarah offer us a picture of the childless couple who miraculously were given a child of promise. But there's actually another story which sits more closely with Zechariah and Elizabeth. And that's the story of Elkanah and Hannah, the beginning of 1 Samuel. There was a woman called Hannah who couldn't have kids, married to a man called Elkanah, and she was desperate for a family. And she used to go to Shiloh, which was the place where the Ark of God was, and it was the the shrine, the place where they worshipped in those days. Jerusalem hadn't been conquered. The temple hadn't been built. This is much earlier. And Hannah went and cried out and made a promise to God that if he would give her a child, she would dedicate that child to the Lord and he would serve him all his days. And the Lord heard and answered her prayer. And so if Zechariah stood in the presence of God in a place of worship and in the context of intense prayer, Hannah did the same went to the the place of worship. And in that place of intense prayer, God heard her cry. You know, God hears your cry in the places where we get real (laughs) and where we go deeper perhaps than just dutiful prayers or customary prayers. These were prayers of desperation. 
and in the presence of God. And for us, it doesn't need to be in a, a temple or a holy place. The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. God's presence is everywhere. But in the eyes of Eli, who was in charge of the shrine at, at Shiloh, Hannah was just some ordinary woman. He once mistook her for a drunk, actually, because her prayers were so intense. He said, stop drinking beer and wine. You're an embarrassment. And she says, I haven't been drinking. This is intensity. This is, uh, comes from intensity of my heart. And God heard her prayer, and Samuel was born. Now, who is Samuel? Samuel was none other than the forerunner of King David. Samuel was the, the prophet priest who in time would go to Jesse's household and have him line up his boys because God had told him to go and anoint a king. And he went down the lineup and couldn't find any that his heart, uh, where the Spirit of God resonated in his heart. And he came to the end and said, is there anyone else? And he said, oh, there's the young boy out with the sheep. Bring him in. And David was anointed king. And so if you want a parallel for Zechariah and Elizabeth, You've got the parallel in Elkanah and Hannah and the birth of Samuel. Samuel is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Samuel. See, what's been before comes again. And Samuel anointed David in the same way that John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, the Son of David. Zechariah and Elizabeth were just an old married couple without a family. He was one of a massive sea of priests descended from Aaron. If you're descended from Aaron, you were a priest. There were thousands of them. There were so many priests, they didn't have enough jobs for them all to do. They put them in divisions, and their divisions, uh, when it was your division, then they would draw lots. In all likelihood, Zechariah was one of a thousand priests in his division, and they only had jobs for about half a dozen of them in the temple for a week. Two weeks a year, different ones would get picked to offer sacrifice, to burn incense. And Zechariah's lot came up. It was probably the highlight of his life because there was nothing else memorable going on. Just one of a sea of priests, him and his wife descended from Aaron, chosen to spend a week working in the temple, and he got picked to light the evening incense once. Just ordinary people. Abraham, he left. Hannah, put away your beer. Zechariah, yeah, just a priest. Cast of characters, throwaways from obscurity to celebrity. Because 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, shall we keep counting years on? Here we are in the center of Glasgow talking about them. That makes them quite memorable and significant because God takes what is obscure. God takes the lives of people who are hidden. And there'll be no paparazzi flashing at your door, I hope. There'll be no one shoving microphones in your face asking you for a soundbite or a comment as they have been with MPs and political leaders and so on this past week. But do you know what? That's not the kingdom that will last or the one that will count. This is the kingdom that counts. This is the kingdom that lasts. 
And God takes ordinary people, plucks them from obscurity, and He celebrates them. If you want evidence that God celebrates you, then read Luke 15. Behold, I found my lost sheep. Rejoice with me. Behold, I found my lost coin. Rejoice with me. While he was still a long way off, the father ran out to meet his boy. There is great rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Never imagine that perhaps because in earthly eyes you've not had a five minutes of fame nor anticipate ever having one, that you are insignificant or indeed that God doesn't have a significant plan for you. Sure, Scripture is closed and your name will not be written in the Bible for generations to read, but Nonetheless, God's promise to all who believe in His Son, who humble their lives and open them to Him, is that your name will indeed be written and recorded and celebrated in the Lamb's book of life. Now, I'm not suggesting that we pursue fame and celebrity for its own sake. Mary didn't, but she rejoiced that God took account of the humble estate. What do you want your life to be about? What do you want to be known for? What do you hope to be remembered for? What do you hope it to count for? Because whatever it might count for in this life might be uh, great and desirable and a huge uh, achievement in earthly terms, But make sure that your life counts for the kingdom because that's the one that lasts. Adam and Eve, of course, were the parents of humankind from whom sinful humanity came. It wasn't intended to be that way, but that's the way it was. Adam and Eve, who listened to the serpent and ate from the tree, and it all came crashing down, and they were barred and excluded. They listened to the devil and went into a wilderness place. And none other than Mary and Joseph receive an invitation by angels from God to bear a new humanity into the world who when he was grown would go into the wilderness and there face the temptations of the devil. As Adam and Eve had done in a different sequence and refusing the temptations of the devil and resisting and holding fast to God's instructions and His will went from there and began to proclaim the advance of the kingdom. And so Mary and Joseph, plucked from obscurity, unbeknown to them, would never have thought of themselves as in any way a kind of Adam and Eve. And yet, there's a connection. Now, Jesus is the new Adam, not Joseph. 
But nonetheless, you can see where it connects. And Mary and Joseph would never have had for themselves any thought that it was through them that God was doing a whole new thing and bringing in the advance of His kingdom over against an onslaught on the prince of this world and his agency who had rampaged and ravaged the world and made it his own, and the kingdom of God comes through them to claim it back and to offer himself and to die for it. Why shepherds? Well, yes, they were Jewish and they were lowly and they were outcasts. They were a nomadic people who never got to church because they were always watching their flocks. And the ones outside Bethlehem had a special job because they were raising the lambs that went into the temple to be sacrificed. And so their trade was in lambs for God. (laughs) What they did was to raise lambs for God in Bethlehem, the city of David, their illustrious forebear shepherd king who had been out feeding sheep when Samuel came a-knocking. And so if the shepherds were out watching their flocks at night, it's because when God came calling once before David, their forebear, their shepherd king, was out watching flocks when news came of God's advancing kingdom and of the part that he unwittingly plucked from nowhere, the youngest of the sons. You never pick the youngest over the older ones, and yet he plucked from obscurity was the shepherd king and the one to whom the promise was given that descendants would come, a descendant would come, who would be a king forever over God's people. And so were there shepherds there because of David, because this was the son of David, the Lamb of God? Not just that they were lowly, humble people at the bottom end of the social scale. Yes, that too, and Jewish. The kind of people Jesus came for that nobody else had time for. But there was a significance that they would never have seen. They'd never have seen themselves as standing in the line of David. Well, they didn't genealogically but they did in other ways. I like this next one. I haven't thought this thought before, so come up and tell me afterwards, Alistair, you are barking. You need to get more sleep. Why wise men? I mean, where have we seen them before? And I got to thinking about where the wise men came from, and they came from hmm, probably Babylonish. And I got to thinking about who of God's people, where were there wise men in Babylon that saw things and spoke the word and will of God so that God's purposes were worked out? Well, Daniel was such a man. Daniel the prophet. Daniel who, aged 17 with his pals, was taken into captivity, and yet with a heart pounding for loyalty to the God of Israel, refused to eat the meat that was served to them, and ate only vegetables. And the book of Daniel charts his life from about 17 to 70, where Daniel lives through and sees off successive kings and brings wisdom and godly insight to each and every one of them. And you know, I'm fascinated by a little footnote in Daniel 
where we're told that when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, and the king came and saw that Daniel had survived the night because the Lord had shut the mouths of the angels because one like a son of man had appeared. You know, and it says that when Darius the Mede saw that he was still alive, he worshipped the God of Israel. And there's a little footnote at the bottom that says, uh, where it says Darius the Mede. You can go and check this out. I probably should have the reference for you, but missed that one. You can look it up for yourselves. Can you do some of the work for goodness sakes? Darius the Mede in the text, it says, and then the little footnote, it says, or Cyrus the Persian. Now, that fascinates me because, you know, kings have different titles, right? Prince Charles is what? Prince of Wales? What else is he? Duke of Cornwall? What is he if he's in Scotland? Earl of Rothsey. So everywhere he goes, he has a different name. He's got a Welsh name, he's got a Scottish name, he's got an English name, he's got the name his pals call him. Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. Is it just possibly the case that because of Daniel's faithfulness to God and because of God's honoring of him in the lion's den, it wasn't just that this was Darius the Mede, this was Cyrus the Persian. What's the big deal about Cyrus the Persian? Do you remember who Cyrus the Persian was? He was the king who finally said, the exile is over and I'm sending you back home. Was it because of Daniel's faithfulness and God's honoring of that and the Son of Man shutting the lion's mouths? Was it because of that that Cyrus the, Persians had a, Cyrus the Persian had the change of heart which opened the door to let God's people go home again. Little Daniel, who would only eat a vegetarian diet out of honor to God, plucked from nowhere, a wise man from the east through whom God's people could come traveling back home in preparation and anticipation for their Messiah. There are other reasons why, of course. The classic reason is that the wise men were foreigners. They were Gentiles. They were those outside of Israel because God's Messiah was not just for the Jewish people, but for you and me who do not claim to be Jewish, but are part of the Gentile people to be brought in. You see, Scripture has so many layers. God's dealings have so many layers. I don't know if I'm really stretching it with Simeon and Anna, and I think I really might be here, but at the very least, you know, Simeon got to stand on the edge of something and see the fulfillment of a promise that he'd held in his heart for a very long time. And I got to thinking of Moses, who got to stand and look at the promised land. After all these years keeping faith and trying to serve God and keep the people from following pagan idolatry. And Moses got to the edge of the promised land and just got to see, but not to enter. And Simeon got all the way to see a baby who would not begin a ministry for another 30 years, but not to enter. And with Simeon Moses, there stood Anna in the fine tradition of the prophets, and Elijah, perhaps, perhaps the greatest of the prophets. You see, what God's done before, He does again. He recycles. God is the ultimate recycler. 
He fulfills his purposes by plucking in every generation nothings and no ones, obscure people who have no celebrity or paparazzi to attend them. And so I'm just looking at them, just looking at his choice for this day and generation, looking at his choice of those that he's plucked from indifference and hostility, from mockery, from hard-heartedness, from slavery to other things, in order that he might use little you. I love the story of Gladys Aylward. She's one of my favorite missionary stories. This little, uh, little lady who worked in service, her family had worked in service. She was a, utterly a downstairs type in the upstairs, downstairs world of the Victorian era. And yet she loved and served God with a passion and went and took the gospel to China and made massive inroads in bringing Chinese people to know about Jesus. So I just love to think about these cast of characters that we know so well and trot them out every Christmas. But let's think about not just the stories that they told but the stories that went before them that they are an echo of and ask you to think, who are you an echo of? A Simeon and Anna, a Zechariah and Elizabeth knocking on in years and thinking God couldn't do much more useful with me, Abraham and Sarah, all of them an elderly lot. And yet God's most spectacular miracles were yet wrought through those who thought their best days were behind them. Or Mary and Joseph, just kids really, just at the start with other expectations for their lives perhaps. And God interrupted spectacularly and said, I have other things for you to do. Are you willing to be a Mary and a Joseph? You will not be asked to do as he was. And if you are here last night, you heard me say this with Charlie already. But Mary and Joseph, with the limited information, understanding that they had stepped up, they said with Isaiah and many others before them, Here am I, Lord, let it be to me according to your will. Our shepherds are wise men the ones who live on the margins, surviving as best they can, or rich, educated foreigners from a far-off place. You see, everybody here is there. There's not one of you sitting here that I couldn't slot into Scripture. <laughs> and see, this is you, and you are here if you'll accept it. And let God take your weakness and your frailty because these were no alabaster saints without flaws or doubts or difficult days. But God takes our willingness. And many of these people end up in Hebrews 11 in the hall of faith, not fame. Because it was by faith they just believed that God could take them and use them. And they held on in faith. And because of that faith, God did things through them that would allow the next chapter to break in. And given that we're not at the last chapter when Jesus comes back, there are still chapters left where he needs you to break in. 
And I don't know, you're already doing it, many of you. Keep doing it. But don't be surprised if the page turns and a different chapter opens up. Just be willing with Mary to say, I'm the Lord's servant. <laughs> Let it be to me according to your will. Let's pray together.